Okay, so last time we talked entirely about this period here, the reason for the exile. That was in Zechariah chapter 7 and 8. And now we're going to talk about uh, the early first three chapters of Zechariah, and we're going to concentrate here on the vision of Joshua, Satan, and the angel of the Lord. That's really an interesting story. But I think understanding the three visions prior to that is maybe helpful just a little bit for um, helping us to understand uh, what this whole thing with Joshua and Satan is about. Okay, so um, Zechariah opens up. Remember, Zechariah and Haggai are books that encourage the people, um, come back, rebuild the temple, and uh, build the wall. And uh, they're, uh, the, these two prophets are encouraging Joshua the high priest, Zerubbabel the governor, and the other people to return and to rebuild the city. So the message here is, is very encouraging at the beginning. You know, return to me and I will return to you. And then there's this... Um, First vision. In the second year that Darius was emperor, on the 24th day of the 11th month, yeah, like all of these specifics, kind of gives it a, a ring of credibility that it really happened at this time. The Lord gave me a message in a vision at night. I saw someone riding a red horse. He had stopped among some myrtle trees in a valley, and behind him were other horses, red, dappled, and white. And I asked him, and, and actually, if you ever have a receive a vision, um, ask questions. Okay, because I just noticed in the Bible that um, when John in Revelation, when other people say, well, what was that? What does that mean? Um, they get answers. Okay, so uh, anyway, I, I don't know how likely that is to happen, but uh, you should ask questions. And so he's asked, sir, what do these horses mean? And he answered, I will show you what they mean. <clears throat> the Lord sent them to go and inspect the earth. They reported to the angel, We have been all over the world and have found that the whole world lies helpless and subdued. Then the angel said, Almighty Lord, you have been angry with Jerusalem and the cities of Judah for 70 years now. This is the third time that uh, this 70-year period of the captivity is mentioned. It was, remember, predicted by Jeremiah, Daniel talked about it, and now here we have it in Zechariah. Okay, and we've, we've, I think, talked quite a bit about the subject of of God's anger and, and what that means. So how much longer will it be before you show them mercy? The Lord answered the angel with comforting words. And the angel told me to proclaim what the Lord Almighty had said. I have a deep love and concern for Jerusalem, my holy city. My temple will be restored and the city will be rebuilt. Okay, so uh, what does this mean? Uh, Not much of a mystery, I think, here. Four in the Bible is always the number of the world. Okay, the, the four corners of the earth. In Isaiah, same thing in Revelation, four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds. And then in Revelation 20, he will come to Satan to deceive the nations at the four corners of the earth. So the four here uh, symbolizes the world. Okay, And these horses go out um, to inspect the world. Again, the Lord sent them to inspect the earth. And the whole world lies helpless and subdued. So the, the message would be, I think, one of uh, encouragement. I mean, if you've just been in captivity for 70 years and you get a message that, you know, the, the earth is subdued and kind of uh, then encouraged to return. <clears throat> so again, the words after the vision are comforting words and with the promise that God has a deep love and concern and that my temple will be restored. Okay, so it was, it was supposed to be a message of encouragement for the people. Same thing with the vision of the four horns. And then I looked up and saw four animal horns. And again, we can thank that Zechariah asks questions. What are these? I asked the angel who was talking with me. 
And he replied, These horns represent the nations that scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. And then the Lord showed me four blacksmiths. What are these men coming to do? I asked. And the angel replied, These four horns, these nations, scattered and humbled Judah. And now these blacksmiths have come to terrify these nations and throw them down and destroy them. So a similar uh, kind of thing. God is saying, I'm going to take care of you. And all of these nations that um, you know were involved in your destruction and the captivity, um, you know th- that's not going to be successful. You should you should feel confident about returning. <clears throat> okay, and same thing with the measuring line, a vision of encouragement. So in another mission, I saw a man with a measuring line in his hand. Where are you going? I asked. To measure Jerusalem, he answered, to see how long and how wide it is. And then I saw the angel who had been speaking to me step forward, and another angel came to meet him. And the first one said to the other, Run and tell that young man with the measuring line that there are going to be so many people and so much livestock in Jerusalem that it will be too big to have walls. The Lord has promised that he himself will be a wall of fire around the city to protect it, and that he will live there in all his glory. So, I mean, wouldn't that encourage you? The Lord himself will be a wall of fire and uh, this, this would have, a, I think, a, a prophetic and a, and a deeper meaning as well. But if you were living in that time, uh, that would certainly be a message of encouragement to return, come back. <clears throat> okay, and then this verse, which uh, is variously translated, which I find quite interesting, Zechariah 2.8, where God says, anyone who strikes you strikes what is most precious to me. Or in the Anchor Bible, whoever strikes you also strikes at my open eye. It's like if someone hits you, it's, it's like poking your eye in God. And in the God's Word translation, whoever touches you touches the apple of his eye. And so I understand here that in, in the, to, the apple of the eye is actually mentioned several times in the Old Testament. I guess literally this actually means the little man of the eye. Okay, and what it refers to is that tiny reflection. You know, when you look at someone else's pupil and the light is just right, you can see a little reflection of yourself in the pupil. Okay, and so this is, refers to, um, you know, whoever strikes you, I mean, there is a, a God-like image in all of us that God is trying to restore and to heal, and whoever strikes you is striking that, that precious part, that God-like part that is in all of us. Okay, and uh, we can just go back for this to Genesis 1. Okay, when humans were created, let us make human beings in our image. You know, does that mean our nose and our eyes look like God? Is that what it means? Make them reflecting our nature. Okay, could we say uh, character? That God created us more important than with the physical attributes of God, fingers and toes, but implanted us with a, a God-like character, which, which I think we could say most clearly is a, a selfless love. It is an other-centered love, that that is the essence of the God-like uh, nature uh, that, that God wants to have in us. So God created human beings. He created them God-like, reflecting God's nature. Okay, so again, there is this very precious um, part in us that is implanted, and it's yes, it's largely been obliterated. Okay, but, but God is trying to make something out of, out of that again. All right, so again, uh, just to paint the picture of why these people would need to be encouraged so much. I mean, 70 years is a long time. I mean, just think back 70 years in our history and being in a foreign nation for 70 years um, and all of the resistance that would come with returning to Jerusalem. 
Um, we will finish up the Old Testament going through Ezra, Nehemiah, and uh, Esther. Okay, these three books, Ezra and Nehemiah, describe the difficulty the people had coming back to Jerusalem, rebuilding the walls. Esther describes the people that chose not to return to Jerusalem. Okay, but if we skip forward to Ezra, just to paint the picture here about the enemies of the people of Judah and Benjamin, and they heard that those who had returned from exile were rebuilding the temple of the Lord. And what they said was, hey, let us help you. We'll help you rebuild the temple. But it was a trick. They wanted to get in there on the building project so that they could destroy it. And um, skipping forward a few verses, Zerubbabel and Joshua, remember Zerubbabel is the governor, Joshua the high priest, and the heads of the clans told them, we don't need your help to build a temple for the Lord our God. We will build it ourselves, just as Emperor Cyrus of Persia commanded us. And then the people who had been living in the land tried to discourage and frighten the Jews and keep them from building. And when we get into Ezra and Nehemiah, we'll talk about how when the people were building, they'd have a sword in one hand and they'd be working with the other hand. So, you know, they were, they were trying to defend themselves even as they're trying to rebuild the temple and uh, the wall. All right, so they needed a lot of encouragement. <clears throat> okay, and in Ezra 5, at that time, two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, so all of this kind of fits together here, began to speak in the name of God of Israel to the Jews who lived in Judah and Jerusalem. And when Zerubbabel, the governor, and Joshua heard their messages, they began to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. So the messages that they heard that encouraged them were these visions we just read about the measuring line and the four horses and the four horns, and uh, now the, the next vision about Joshua the high priest. Okay, so this is the one we want to spend the most time on, and probably the one you're most uh, familiar with in Zechariah 3. So in another vision, the Lord showed me the high priest Joshua standing before the angel of the Lord. And um, we've talked about this uh, quite extensively uh, before. I'll just make a claim uh, now, that uh, because it would take some time to, to go over all this again, but I think we could make a good case that the angel of the Lord, uh, that this is uh, Christ. You know, Paul said, the one who went with them in the wilderness wanderings, uh, wanderings that was Christ. Uh, remember, Jesus claimed to be the I am, the I am that talked to Moses. And so I, I think we could, we could make a good case for that, but, but I won't try to um, prove that now. Okay, but the high priest is standing next to the angel of the Lord. And there beside Joshua stood Satan, ready to bring an accusation against him. And the angel of the Lord said to Satan, May the Lord condemn you, or rebuke you, Satan. May the Lord who loves Jerusalem condemn you. This man, Joshua, is like a stick snatched from the fire. And Joshua was standing there wearing filthy clothes. And the angel said to his heavenly attendant, So there are other people there. Take away the filthy clothes this man is wearing. And then he said to Joshua, I have taken away your sin or your guilt and will give you new clothes to wear. And he commanded the attendants to put a clean turban on Joshua's head. They did so, and then they put the new clothes on him while the angel of the Lord stood there. All right, so uh, this is a, an interesting vision. Okay, this didn't actually happen with uh, Joshua standing there, but it's a vision that's meant to have meaning. And we're going to try to understand what's the meaning for that time and uh, you know what, what applications would this have for us? Okay, so just reading on here. The angel of the Lord spoke very solemnly to Joshua and said, this is what the Lord of heaven's armies says. If you follow my ways and carefully serve me, then you will be given authority over my temple and its courtyards. And um, this, uh, the authority here, the, the priest, the, the priest took on a much bigger role uh, after the end of the monarchy. 
Of course, we don't have any more kings of Israel after this. Okay, so the, the priest had a much more significant role in the temple, uh, a position of, of much greater power here after the um, exile. And so this, uh, this may kind of uh, indicate the importance of the role of a high priest um, in that time. Okay, so what are Joshua's dirty clothes? It's interesting that the Hebrew word here for dirty clothes actually means uh, excrement. Okay, so uh, it's meant to paint a very vivid um, portrayal for us. Maybe dirty clothes doesn't quite um, convey that. And if you uh, just, Jewish interpretations of this are generally that this represents the sins of um, Joshua. Okay, either his sin or perhaps the sin of his children um, in marrying marrying strange wives. Because when we read to Ezra and Nehemiah, the big deal was all the people had foreign wives. And we need to get rid of the foreign wives. This created this whole problem in the first place. Look what happened with Solomon, marrying foreign wives. We got into idolatry. And so they got rid of all the foreign wives. And and so there are evidence for this here. In Ezra 10, they have this incredible list. The list of the men who had foreign wives. And it's really long. Okay, and there you find there priests and in the clan of Joshua. Okay, his brothers and sons who all had foreign wives. Okay, so, so one interpretation here is that, um, you know, Joshua certainly uh, was not without fault, and perhaps he had some problem in this area, and so this was a message to Joshua about his own personal sin. Okay, and I think that would be true, um, not necessarily about the foreign wives, but, but just about sin um, of an individual as an important part of the story, but I would uh, perhaps put a little bit more uh, significance here on the, the corporate sin, the sin of the people as a whole, and that the, the removal of the filthy clothes represented uh, much more than just one individual. Okay, we, we read this prayer in Daniel 9, but it's really remarkable here that during the time of Darius, remember uh, Daniel was studying the sacred books, thinking about the 70 years, Okay, and then he prayed. And notice what he prayed. This is, this is a prayer about the people coming back to Jerusalem, and it's talking about this, this whole concept of uh, corporate sin. I mean, Daniel, this, there's very few people in the Bible where there's nothing bad. We read about an individual. Okay, Daniel is good from cover to cover in the book of Daniel. But yet, his prayer, we have sinned. We have been evil. We have done wrong. We have rejected what you command. It's always in the we form. And we have turned away from what you showed us what was right. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets. You are merciful and forgiving, although we have rebelled against you. We did not listen to you, O Lord our God, when you told us to live according to the laws which you gave us. We sinned against you. But even now, O Lord our God, we have not tried to please you by turning from our sins or by following your truth. We did not listen to you. We have sinned. We have done wrong. We are praying to you because you are merciful, not because we have done right. Okay, so here's Daniel, this incredibly faithful Daniel, you know, becoming a part of the nation of Israel and saying, we have really messed up. Okay, and bring us back, not because of anything good that we've done or are doing, but just because of your own goodness. It's, it's a corporate responsibility um, for this entire mess. So I would, I would like to, to put this as, a, as a, a significant part of the filthy clothes of Joshua, and that this was meant to have a meaning, not just for Joshua the individual, but for the entire nation. High priest would represent um, all of the people. 
And uh, just, I, I know I'm skipping ahead in the story here, but when the people all come back, they rebuild the walls. It's very moving, actually, in Nehemiah. Because, uh, well, I'll just, I'll just read it, but, but I think this is one of the more incredible stories here in the Bible. That by the seventh month, the people of Israel were all settled in their towns. And the first day of that month, they all assembled in Jerusalem in the square, just inside the water gate. There's a water gate in the Bible. And they asked Ezra, the priest and scholar of the law, which the Lord had given Israel through Moses, to get the book of the law. And so he, he gets the Old Testament scriptures, and he reads them all day. All the people are there from dawn until noon or later, and he just read cover to cover. And what's interesting here is, um, you know, they were in Babylonian captivity, and so the people no longer understood Hebrew. Okay, they, they understand Aramaic, so they didn't understand the Hebrew. And so translators had to be sent out to help the people understand um, the, the Old Testament. And so it was translated into Aramaic so that they could understand, because they really were just, uh, had totally lost touch uh, with, with these writings. And the response here is quite incredible. When the people heard what the law required, they were so moved, they began to cry. Unfamiliar with many of the stories, unfamiliar with what was written there. And when it was finally presented to them in a way that they could understand, they were very moved by it. And, um, you know, Nehemiah and Ezra told the people, don't worry, God is with you. They encouraged them. They sent them home. Okay, but, but again, they understood how far astray they had gone from God's plan and uh, I think understood all of the promises and the things that God said he would do for them if they would just you know, be loyal and trusting and saw what a mess they'd made of things. It, again, it's, it's the corporate um, kind of uh, responsibility here that we're talking about. So taking away the filthy clothes. Um, again, a footnote in, in a Bible that I have, it symbolizes the end of national mourning over the destruction of Jerusalem and the exile. And I think much much more than that, the, the corporate guilt of the people as they come back. Is God really going to still be with us or not? Okay, but there's another figure, of course, um, in this story. Okay, why do we need Satan standing there? Okay, what, what is that, um, how does that add to the story? Okay, because there we have the angel of the Lord, and there beside Joshua stood Satan, ready to bring an accusation. It's the significance of that. It's significant because Satan is really only mentioned three times in the whole Old Testament. Okay, this is one of them. Okay, I want to go back to Daniel's prayer uh, because I think this brings in that element as well. Remember, he had this incredible prayer. We have sinned, we have sinned, we have sinned. Uh, it's the end of the 70 years, God. We have sinned. Let us come back. And then an angel comes. I have come and answered to your prayer, that prayer that we just read. Okay, and this incredible description that the angel gives. Now, what do you imagine really happening? This is the description that the angel gives. Now, this is what happened after your prayer, Daniel. The angel prince of the kingdom of Persia, or the spirit prince of the kingdom of Persia, opposed me for 21 days. Okay, now, who stands up to Gabriel for 21 days? And then Michael, one of the chief angels, came to help me. And now I have to go back and fight the guardian angel of Persia. After that, the guardian angel of Greece will appear. Who are all these uh, people coming onto the stage here? Um, you know, it's, it's an incredible part of the story because it's like this curtain gets pulled back. Okay, Daniel, since your prayer, 
and we're talking about going back to Jerusalem, uh, let me just describe. And we have all this uh, seemingly uh, angelic conflict here behind the scenes. And there's no one to help me except Michael, Israel's guardian angel. He is responsible for helping and defending me. And so there's opposition. However we understand this, there's opposition that would seem to be in the non-human realm uh, to this move back to Jerusalem. Okay, and, and there we have Satan here in, in the vision of Joshua. And so I think uh, the encouragement here is to try to look behind the curtain and see that, you know, there's more behind all of this. There are forces that are actively working behind the scenes, and in this case, to resist uh, the, the positive thing. I mean, the decision of Cyrus to issue the decree to return, that there was resistance to that. Okay, and uh, trying to describe that. So what did happen to Satan in the Old Testament? We're almost done with the Old Testament, so I have to bring this up one last time. It's been a while since we've talked about it, I think. But, you know, we have this snake in the tree, but it doesn't actually say that the snake was Satan. It's not until we get to Revelation that the ancient serpent of old, who is the devil or Satan, you know, it's a long time until we seem to get the the positive identity of um, who that snake was. And even verses like Isaiah 14, where we like to, in some translations, uh, the fallen star, Lucifer, or the, the shining star, not positively identified as Satan. Okay, I think we can make a good case that it is, but it doesn't, doesn't actually use the word. Or in Ezekiel 28, okay, the, the king of Tyre, who was the model of perfection, full of wisdom, ex- exquisite in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God, and so on. Okay, we, make a, we extrapolate that using the whole Bible to make a case for that being Satan, but it, it doesn't actually say that in the text. Um, I won't uh, read this, but um, I tried to make the case when we went through Job some time ago that there's this monster at the end of the story, Leviathan, okay, whose pride is invincible. Nothing can make a dent in that pride, and it goes on and on to, to describe that. Well, I think if we use Isaiah, we could make a case, perhaps, for this uh, being representative of Satan. Of course, we do find Satan in the beginning of Job. But again, it's not clearly spelled out for us. And uh, why is that? Um, here's Alden Thompson, who I don't know if any of you went to Walla Walla, and yeah, I see a couple hands there. But he's written uh, quite a lot on this, which has been helpful to me. This is his description in terms of, you know, in the New Testament, you, you can't read very far without... Uh, discussion about Satan. I mean, the first thing Jesus does in his ministry, he just goes out into the wilderness and is tempted by Satan. It's it's all over the place. So the relative absence in the Old Testament, Alden Thompson would describe it this way, that the nations surrounding Israel were were polytheistic, worshiping many gods. In a polytheistic culture, the good things are attributed to the good gods, bad things to the evil ones. And those evil deities could be so volatile that humans were constantly brewing up incantations and magic rituals to placate them. The great danger for Israel lay in the temptation to worship Satan as another god. I mean, look at the gods they were worshiping. Moloch, who, you know, heat up the hot hands and put the babies in there. They always, you know, demanded child sacrifice. Okay, and so rather than just forbidding magic and incantation, God went a step further and claimed full responsibility for good and evil. Now, I realize that's, that's a lot to take in, but let me just read on a little more. As a result, throughout most of its pages, the Old Testament portrays God as the active agent in all things. God is the one who causes everything. Satan simply drops from sight until the very end of the Old Testament, and that's where we are now. Okay, so, so his case is 
you know, we don't want to, to highlight this individual in a polytheistic culture where they're worshiping all kinds of um, cruel deities that, of course, don't really exist. So Satan is veiled in the Old Testament. He is very much unveiled in the New Testament. First thing Jesus does is to expose him, defeats him at the cross. He's very much unveiled in the book of Revelation. But that has to be very carefully done, is I think his point. So again, a verse on this, God taking responsibility for everything. Here in Isaiah 45, God speaking, I create both light and darkness. I bring both blessing and disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things. God does everything. When we went through 1 Samuel, you know, God sends evil spirits to tempt Saul. And um, it, it's a difficult book, I think, to understand unless uh, we, we incorporate perhaps a, a veiling of this individual. I don't think that detracts from inspiration, okay? But it is uh, God meeting people where they are. But if we take the Bible as a whole, I think uh, these things perhaps become more clear. So last uh, words here from Alden Thompson. Indeed, only three passages in the entire Old Testament are explicit in their reference to the Satan, who was God's great adversary. And all three passages were either written or canonized toward the end of the Old Testament period. So Zechariah, uh, Job, which was canonized very late, and this one other passage. And this one other passage in Chronicles is, um, is one we just, we just have to deal with. Oops. So first, the story is told two times about David giving the census. First is in 2 Samuel, where the description here is that the Lord was angry at Israel again, and he made David think it would be a good idea to count the people in Israel and Judah. Now, we read in James that God does not tempt evil. Okay, but it would, it would kind of seem that way from this passage. So fortunately, we, we have another description, again in Chronicles, canonized much later, and it's exactly the opposite. Same story, that now Satan wanted to bring trouble on the people of Israel, so he made David decide to take a census. It would, it would seem that we have polar opposite ways of understanding this. And, and again, from my perspective, this doesn't, um, is not an attack against uh, you know, the, the Bible being uh, inspired. I think it is, is God meeting people where they are, working with people where they are. Um, and so I think we can incorporate both and say that in the Old Testament, God does take responsibility for many things. And that God is often described in the Old Testament as doing what he instead allows to happen. But I think more clearly we see um, another agent behind a lot of these things uh, that we read about in the Old Testament. So uh, let me give you one example of this. Um, in the book of Numbers, God's, God sends snakes to bite the people as they're in the wilderness. Okay? So here it is in Numbers 21. So you might remember the story. They left Mount Hor, but on the way, the people lost their patience, as they did hundreds and hundreds of times, and they spoke against God and Moses. They complained, why did you bring us out of Egypt to die in this desert where there's no food or water? We can't stand any more of this miserable food. And then the Lord sent poisonous snakes among the people, and many Israelites were bitten and died. Okay, that's a troubling story. Well, for some it isn't. Some like a God who is like that. Good. They needed something like that. But, but for others, I would say most of us, uh, that's, that's rather uh, troubling. God sends poisonous snakes to bite. And um, I include uh, this quote here just because... These are the words of Ellen White, and I only bring this up, at least for the Adventists here, just because 
um, there, there's sometimes some resistance here and feeling like, well, this, I want to take the Bible as it reads. The Bible says the Lord sent poisonous snakes. Let's not do all this fancy footwork to try to come up with another explanation for that. So this is not a, a proof, but just kind of thoughts uh, to consider on, on the subject here. So she would interpret the story this way. <clears throat> Every day of their travels, they had been kept by a miracle of divine mercy. In all the way of God's leading, they had found water, peace, and safety under the shadowy cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night. Angels administered to them. Notwithstanding the hardships they had endured, there was not a feeble one in all their ranks. And you can get that from Deuteronomy. Their feet had not swollen in the long journeys, neither had their clothes grown old. And we get that from Deuteronomy. God had subdued them, uh, subdued before them the fierce beasts of prey and the venomous reptiles of the forest and the desert. Okay, so, so God is the, the protector through all of this. If with all these tokens of his love, the people still continued to complain, the Lord would withdraw his protection until they should be led to appreciate his merciful care and return to him with repentance and humiliation. Because they had been shielded by divine power, they had not realized the countless dangers by which they were continually surrounded. In their ingratitude and unbelief, they had anticipated death and now the Lord permitted death to come upon them. The poisonous serpents that infested the wilderness were called fiery serpents on account of their terrible effects produced by their sting, it causing violent inflammation and speedy death. And notice, as the protecting hand of God was removed from Israel, great numbers of people were attacked by these venomous creatures. So is it fair to interpret the story that way? I, I think if we're, we're trying to build a, a picture here, and again, looking at Samuel and Chronicles, of God in the Old Testament often being described as doing something that he allows to happen. And, and God did do something, right? He had no choice. I mean, his people don't trust him. They want him to leave them alone. And God, above all, respects our freedom. So he removes his protecting hand. He did something. And then when he did that, the, the, the snakes uh, step in. I mean, is it a coincidence? These are snakes. I don't know. But uh, the snakes come onto the scene and, and we have all this chaos. So I think we could, we could maybe paint a slightly different picture than, than God being the active agent in the sending of the snakes. Okay, so concept here, which, which for me personally is just very helpful. We talk about theodicy, why is our world the way it is? We tend to just think of two things here. There's God and there's us. And that's it. Okay, why doesn't God answer prayer? Why are things the way they are? And, um, you know, it's true, very often this is because of our own, that we've messed up and done all kinds of things that have led to human disaster. But I think uh, we, we're missing something if we leave out the non-human element. And I think that's where these, these stories here in Zechariah and Daniel, and especially getting the New Testament, that we incorporate that into our understanding of why our world is the way it is. Okay, so in Zechariah, the... Satan is called the accuser, okay? And we can make uh, many examples here in the Bible about uh, how he is the accuser. So the huge dragon was thrown out, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan that deceived the whole world. He was thrown down to earth, all his angels with him. And the one who stood before our God and accused believers day and night has been thrown out of heaven. So I kind of want to understand what, what is the accusation? Okay, Satan accuses. What, what does the accusation look like in the story of Joshua and elsewhere? Uh, what, what's the nature of the accusations? 
Okay, so we'll do just do a quick run through of about five examples in the Bible. The first, of course, begins at the tree, a story we've probably talked about more than any other. I mean, it describes what went wrong on planet Earth. So we need to get our understanding of this story correct. Okay, so the snake was the most cunning animal that the Lord God had made. And the snake asked the woman, did God really tell you not to eat fruit from any tree in the garden? And um, I think we've probably talked about this enough. We don't need to drag this out. But of course, God said you may eat the fruit of any tree in the garden. And the snake essentially says you can't eat any fruit in this garden. And uh, the, as uh, Sigby Tonstead likes to say, the anonymity of this. He doesn't really come as the open accuser. He could almost be seen as someone who wants to defend God. You know, say, I heard this. It may not be true, but I, I sort of heard this somewhere. He's, he's the originator of the lie, but yet he talks about it kind of in the third person. Okay, so it's a subtle implication that, that would suggest that um, God isn't a God of freedom. Okay, maybe it was just meant to, in Eve's mind, set up the idea, well, why should I be restricted at all, even to one tree? Okay, but just a very subtle foot in the door. And then, of course, um, Eve weakly defends God, and then uh, the serpent goes in for the kill. That's not true. You will not die. And here, God is a liar. God is not trustworthy. I mean, he is trashing God's reputation in this story in front of Eve. He's trying to break down Eve's trust in God. Okay, because once that happens, it's, it's game over. Okay, so the initial accusations here are really against God and his character. Okay, and then the, the third part of the lie is uh, the serpent said, God said that because he knows that when you eat it, you will be like God and know what is good and what is bad. The implication here is, you know, you're not good enough, Eve. And God has selfishly kept you from something that would make you better. But he's kept you at a lower state, selfishly. Okay, and now there's, there's kind of an accusation maybe in Eve's mind. She's not good enough. Needs to do something more to, get to, to reach a higher state. Okay, so the initial accusation is against God, and then there's a subtle accusation that Eve isn't good enough and perhaps stimulates some selfish desires to have something that, uh, that God, for whatever reason, had, had withheld from her. Okay, so this is, this is how the accuser works. Okay, we see other examples here in Job. This is an incredible story uh, that I think, perhaps better than any other book in the Bible, um, describes Satan as the accuser. And you remember, Job, he didn't know about Satan. What happened was up in the heavenly realm. Okay, the description is that when, on the day when the heavenly beings appeared before the Lord, Satan was there among them. Okay, so we have this, uh, some sort of an angelic uh, get-together. Okay, and the accusations then, of course, is uh, against Job, not in, front of, not in Job's presence, Okay, but in front of all of the uh, angelic representatives. And of course, Satan said, well, the only reason he serves you is because you bless him, you protect him, it's not fair, take it away, and he'll curse you. And of course, Job didn't. But then the, the friends come. The friends are accusers. Okay, they, they represent, uh, I would say, Satan in the story, or at least his lies. And what did the friends say? You're bad, Job, you've sinned. Okay, they try to make Job feel that everything that happened was because of his own sin. And of course, the Job 1 says that God calls Job perfect and upright. Satan's the one that says he has a problem. So just one of the, I think this is Elihu, said about Job, have you ever seen anyone like this man, Job? He never shows respect for God. He likes the company of evil people. And where do we get that? And goes around with sinners. 
Okay, so they make all these accusations. Job then is accused by the friends of bringing this all upon himself because of his life, which we know wasn't true. And just a little more on this. Job, have you confessed your sins to God and promised not to sin again? Have you asked God to show you your faults? And have you agreed to stop doing evil? And again, God said, there is a perfect and upright man. Think through everything that Job says. You will see that he talks like an evil man to his sins. He adds rebellion in front of us all. He mocks God and finally would say, you are being punished as you deserve. And there's another verse I left off where you are being punished less than you deserve, Job. So they really, they are the accusers. But I would say there's a motivation behind their accusations. And they're trying to make Job feel worthless and that God is really not for him. Okay, we have Moses. And this is very similar to the story in Zechariah. Moses is dead. And we read about this, um, what happened here in the book of Jude, where not even the chief angel Michael did this. Michael is always the one in conflict uh, with Satan in the Bible. We just read that in Daniel. In his quarrel with the devil, when they argued about who would have the body of Moses, Michael did not dare condemn the devil with insulting words, but said, the Lord rebuke you. It's the same thing that, that Satan said, or that uh, the angel of the Lord said to Satan and Zechariah, the Lord rebuke you, the Lord condemn you. And here we have this argument here over the body of Moses. Okay, and we have to kind of conjecture what is the argument about. But remember, Moses struck the rock. And, um, you know, he didn't get to go into the promised land. So could the accusations here be, you know, you can't take him to heaven. I mean, look what he did. He misrepresented you as being angry with the people. And uh, now you want to bring him to heaven. So the, the accusations, again, are not occurring you know, with Moses being there and hearing them. Okay, but we have this uh, encounter. And of course, we know that Moses was taken to heaven because um, there he is talking with Jesus um, in the New Testament. Okay, so we, now we have Joshua being accused. And so I would say that uh, we, could, we could make a lot out of this, that the accusations, um, perhaps even in the heavenly council, as we've seen in the other stories, that... The accusations would be, God, you know, you can't bring these people back. Look at all that they've done. Just read the Old Testament, the horrible things. Into captivity, you know, child sacrifice, going after idols continually. Um, you, you can't do this. Okay, so perhaps there's accusations in the heavenly council. We mentioned Joshua the individual. Perhaps accusations, perhaps Joshua himself was feeling um, unworthy, or that uh, you know, there's no way that he could actually represent God as a high priest. Perhaps accusations in Joshua's mind that God was not really for him, and that this wouldn't work out. And then I said accusations um, about the people, as in a, in a corporate sense. Okay, but uh, this this role of Satan as the accuser continues all the way through, and. And uh, just uh, these are separated by two verses or three verses here in Matthew 3. Jesus is baptized and a voice comes from heaven. This is my dearly loved son who brings me great joy. And we read on two or three verses later, Jesus is driven out into the wilderness. If you are God's son. Now, we, the words here are that you are my dear son. So what is the significance here? Just of the first words, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become loaves of bread. There's an accusation there. An accusation that this is not really true. You're not really God's son. Well, and if you are, prove it. Do something. And if he would have done something, it would have uh, almost uh, um, given validity 
to the accusation. Okay, so again, the, the subtle accusation was, you know, you're, you're really not. And why don't you use your power? Wasn't that the, the temptation for Jesus all the way through? Use your power for selfish reasons. Okay, and he never once did that. Okay, so I, I think this, this whole idea of the uh, accuser uh, maybe adds a depth here to the uh, Romans 8. Uh, Romans, the, the first eight chapters are this, just this incredible thesis, and then the, the subject kind of changes in Romans 9. But the conclusion of this whole passage of Romans is quite incredible. In view of all this, what can we say? If God is for us, who can be against us? Well, who is against us? I mean, who can we paint in the Bible who is against us? There is someone against us, but it's certainly not God, who did not even keep back his own son, but offered him for us all. He gave us his son. Will he not also freely give us all things? Who will accuse God's chosen people? Well, who is the accuser? Who will accuse God's chosen people? There is someone who accuses, but God himself declares them not guilty. Who then will condemn them? Well, who condemns us? Not Christ Jesus, who died, or rather who was raised to life, and is at the right side of God, interceding with him for us. And intercession, you know, we often view intercession as something that, that shields us from God. But intercession is something that's, that's meant to open up our eyes to see who God is. Jesus came as the intercessor. He came as God in human form. He is God. Okay, but he came to say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. That is an act of intercession. It is to bring us closer uh, not to shield us from the Father. So who then can separate us from the love of Christ? Can trouble do it, or hardship, or persecution, or hunger, or poverty, or danger, or death? For I am certain that nothing can separate us from his love. And notice this things he puts in here as, as things that we might consider would separate us. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor heavenly rulers or powers. Now again, who are those people? Well, they, they should not separate us from God. Neither the present nor the future, neither the world above nor the world below, there is nothing in all creation that will ever be able to separate us from the love of God, which is ours, which is revealed to us through Christ Jesus, our Lord. So the, the accuser here, I think there, there's a perception, it's very hard to get out of our brains, but there is a perception that God is not entirely for us. You know, you've been, quotes, bad for a few months. You haven't gone to church. You haven't prayed. And, well, maybe I better clean up my act first, and then, uh, then maybe uh, God will have a more favorable opinion of me, and then I can, you know, begin to be in his good graces again. The, the idea that, um, you know, God's love for us is like a dimmer switch that goes up and down based on our own behavior, um, I think that is a lie. You know, we need to see that there's really nothing we can do that will diminish God's love for us. It's maxed out all the time. Okay, and, and so, uh, sure, our behavior separates us from God. It has consequences that are very real, but we shouldn't see God's attitude towards us changing in that. That's a deep, built-in accusation in the human psyche. And I think uh, in Jesus, perhaps, that we see that, that that is a lie that goes all the way back to the very beginning. All right, let's pray. <clears throat> Father, thank you so much that uh, we know that there is one person that is truly for us, entirely, 100%. Help us to really believe that more clearly. Um, each of us have lies, misperceptions, things that um, tend to distort our picture of you, tend to lead us to see you in a way that is not accurate. But as we see the, the reality of you in Jesus Christ, 
Help us to really believe how much you are for us. Amen.